Welcome to Voices in Health Law, the podcast of the American Bar Association Health Law Section. I'm your host, Andrew Dimitrio. I'm a senior counsel at Hush Blackwell LLP in Los Angeles. Today, I'm pleased to be in conversation about the future of psychedelic therapies with my colleague, Karen Wong, who is a partner in the psychedelics practice at our firm. Karen, take a moment to introduce yourself to our audience and describe your background. Thank you, Andrew, for having me today. As Andrew mentioned, I'm Karen Luong. I'm a partner at Hush Blackwell. I'm based in Los Angeles. My background is in toxic torts product liability defense litigation, and I co-lead the psychedelics and emerging therapies practice group with this firm. Hush Blackwell is the first AMLA 100 firm to have a practice group that specializes in psychedelic law, and we started it because of the scientific research that has come out in recent years that indicates psychedelic therapy has great promise to treat serious mental health disorders, and I am very happy to be here today. So let's start with talking about what are the potential therapeutic uses of psychedelics Psychedelics, and um, well, you know what, I'll, I'll back up a little bit and, and say that when we're talking about these drugs, people usually mean substances like LSD, magic mushrooms, or psilocybin, MDMA, and DMT, and you know, also ketamine, although ketamine has a special status because it is Schedule 3. All of the other substances I mentioned are Schedule 1 controlled substance. Psychedelics have been used for centuries in indigenous communities for a wide range of therapeutic uses, but it has really just in the past few years that the U.S. has become more open to research and development. Currently, psychedelics are being researched and tested to treat depression, PTSD, substance abuse, chronic pain, anxiety, neurogenesis after stroke, and many more conditions. As of last month, there were 257 clinical trials for classic psychedelics and MDMA. The majority of these trials are for psilocybin with MDMA and LSD in second and third place, respectively. So let's talk about what some of these trials are looking at. What is being studied and what impact will this have ultimately on broader use of psychedelic substances in therapy? Sure. Yeah, I really wanted to highlight a few specific examples so the audience can really get a flavor for what kind of research is happening and the results of it. I'm going to start with the psychedelic drug that is closest to FDA approval, and that is MAPS's clinical trial for MDMA for treatment-resistant PTSD, or post-traumatic stress disorder. MAPS, who is the organization that is running this clinical trial, stands for Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And they are getting ready to submit their new drug application after the successful completion of two phase three clinical trials using MDMA in conjunction with psychotherapy for patients suffering from PTSD. Now, many of our listeners might know that PTSD suffers or affects a huge amount of the U.S. population, particularly combat veterans, and it is a very hard-to-treat disorder with traditional pharmaceuticals with a normally very low success rate, which is why these results of these clinical trials um, are nothing short of astonishing. After just three treatment sessions, 67% of the participants no longer qualified for a diagnosis of PTSD, and 88% of the participants had a clinically significant response. Now, those are the results of MAPS's uh, phase three clinical trial, which was published back in 2021. Now, this year, another phase three clinical trial was completed by MAPS, and it replicated these results. So this just past September, those results were 71.2% of participants no longer qualified for a PTSD diagnosis after three treatment sessions. 
Now that's compared to 47.6% in the placebo group. So these are large scale human clinical trials with significant reproducible results that dwarf the success rates of a traditional therapy. There is also a ongoing psilocybin clinical trial. That's the second specific one I wanted to mention that is showing significant and clinically significant reduction in depression after just one dose of psilocybin. So now you mentioned that the, these drugs, with the exception of ketamine, are in Schedule 1. So why don't you amplify a little bit about what that means in terms of the ability of people to use these in, in therapies? And more important than comment, as these clinical trials crank through, if the FDA actually approves some of these for clinical use, what impact does that have on the scheduling of the drugs? Okay, so I will start with what a Schedule One controlled substance is. A Schedule One is the most restrictive category of controlled substance under the Controlled Substances Act, and that means that all of the psychedelics that I was talking about, so MDMA, psilocybin, LSD, those are all federally illegal for any purpose other than research. With that notable exception, as you mentioned, is ketamine, which has been used in medical settings for a very long time and is Schedule Three. Clinicians are currently able to use ketamine therapy to treat a number of conditions, and Johnson & Johnson's nasal ketamine, brand name is Spravato, has been approved for treatment of major depressive disorder. But all of the other substances are still in research, and they're still illegal for anything except for research. Now, I mentioned that MAPS is widely expected to receive FDA approval for the use of MDMA for treatment-resistant PTSD. What would happen if the FDA approved uh, MAPS's protocol would mean that after the FDA approves a substance, the DEA has 90 days to decide on rescheduling of the substance. And because one of the definitions of a Schedule One substance is that it has no accepted medical use. So if the FDA does approve a substance, then obviously there is an accepted medical use, therefore the DEA would need to reschedule. If the DEA decides to reschedule uh, MDMA, for example, it is not automatic that this substance gets rescheduled in all of the states. Some states have enacted what, what I guess you could refer to as trigger laws, where if the DEA reschedules a substance, then, then the state just follows whatever the DEA has rescheduled. But that's not all states. Some other states have their own scheduling process, and some states have to go through a legislative process for rescheduling. And, and let's pick up on that for a minute, because is there a role for Congress and for state legislatures to take action? Obviously, we've seen uh, legalization of cannabis in, in various uses, even though it remains a Schedule One drug. It's been done at the state level. There's been some initiative at the federal level to, in effect, force the DEA to try and reschedule it. Is there anything likely to happen in, in the psychedelics field? Yes, you know, there is federal legislation uh, that, that has been proposed under the Right to Try Act that would automatically reschedule any Schedule One substance that is in clinical trials um, that falls under the Right to Try Act, it would automatically get rescheduled to Schedule Two, which means that clinicians could, could prescribe it. On the state level, as you know, Oregon and Colorado recently legalized the use of psilocybin in natural medicine for uh, under certain circumstances. And a lot of people are very curious about the interplay between that and, and the fact that it's still federally illegal. Well, you know, the most important thing I think to, to mention in that is that there is no Cole Memorandum for the use of psychedelics. For marijuana, the DOJ has actually taken a written position that they will not expend federal resources to enforce criminal laws where in states where the state legislature has legalized a drug. But 
that does not exist for psychedelics because the Cole Memorandum specifically only applied to cannabis. I, I should add that the Cole Memorandum has since been rescinded, but the DOJ still takes this position despite the fact that it was um, it's technically rescinded. Well, this is a very complex field. I mean, you've got potential legislation, you've got the DEA regulatory process, the FDA regulatory process, and now you've introduced another actor, which is the Department of Justice, which could, you know, issue, and, and it's the, the province, I guess, of the Deputy Attorney General to potentially apply a coal-like relationship to psychedelics which obtain FDA approval. But I want to switch to a different topic. You alluded to right-to-try legislation. And as I understand, there is some litigation pending right now under that legislation for the use of some of these drugs. Would you comment on where that litigation sits and what its prospects are? Absolutely. And this topic is very near and dear to my heart because, you know, in this day and age with advanced medical care, dying a quick and sudden death is not the norm. And the process of dying now lasts longer than it ever did. And other than pain medication, not much has been developed to help people in this stage. Now, 41 states and Congress have acknowledged this with what is called right to try legislation. And what right to try does is it makes certain investigational, but not yet FDA approved drugs accessible to patients with life-threatening illness. For example, those that are in end-of-life hospice care. Now, obviously those patients don't have the luxury of waiting until a new drug makes its way through the long process to FDA approval. And in fact, um, well, and the fact that they are dying soon without intervention mitigates some of the concerns usually present with experimental drugs. Under Right to Try, an eligible investigational drug has completed FDA-approved phase one clinical trials, so it has passed basic safety trials and it has to be not approved or licensed for any use, and it has to remain under investigation. Two psychedelics that fall within this criteria are psilocybin and MDMA. And that brings me to the case at hand that we were mentioning called Ames versus DEA, and it's currently working its way through the um, Ninth Circuit. Now, Dr. Sunil Agarwal, the petitioner in this case, is a palliative care doctor in Washington, who wanted to provide psilocybin therapy to end-of-life patients, but he didn't want to risk losing his license, his medical license, for um, unapproved use of a Schedule One substance. And so what he did is he wrote the DEA to ask if it would accommodate the use of psilocybin under right to try for his patients. The DEA refused, and this case ensued. The petitioners requested, filed a direct petition to the DEA for the rescheduling of psilocybin um, from Schedule One to Schedule Two. And uh, amicus briefs came in with bipartisan support from researchers, from professors, from veterans' rights groups, from normal and clinicians. And I had the great privilege of representing the clinicians in their amicus brief. We argued that psilocybin has twice been designated a breakthrough therapy by the FDA. We quoted studies that showed psilocybin therapy can help immensely to address end-of-life anxiety and help patients come to terms with their impending death. And in situations like hospice care, this seems like the best thing we could do for someone to ease their passing. We argued that the DA's refusal to initiate rulemaking proceedings, silence and muzzles my clients, those, these doctors who can and will present evidence during public hearings that psilocybin has a medically accepted use. And remember, one of the definitions of a Schedule One controlled substance is that there is no currently accepted medical use. So if we can present evidence on, on that, then 
categorically psilocybin should not fit into a schedule one. The hearing on this matter, the petitioners, if it's actually an appeal for prior uh, action, happened just a few weeks ago, and the Ninth Circuit granted the petition, so it remanded the case back to the DEA for issuance of a decision that adequately explains DEA's basis for denial or for the DEA to conduct proceedings on open record. Now, this is a great development, and uh, we shall see what the future holds for this petition. But at minimum, DAA is going to have to explain in detail the basis on which it is denying doctors permission to use these therapies for dying patients. So you've talked a little bit about the fact that Oregon and Colorado have taken the first steps towards the use of psilocybin in therapy. Recently, there was similar legislation passed in California, which the governor chose to veto. Talk a little bit about the experience that has gone on in Oregon and Colorado thus far in terms of how the clinics are organized, who's providing the therapies, and then comment a little bit on why the governor in California chose to veto the uh, the legalization legislation. Sure. Oregon is a little further along in this process, first of all, just to go over a little bit of what's happening. And it, it has established a regulatory framework of state licensed therapists who are allowed to administer psilocybin therapy in state licensed clinics. In Colorado, it's Colorado is taking a slightly different approach, having decriminalized the adult sharing of natural medicine, which includes psychedelics such as psilocybin, mescaline, ibogaine, and DMT, and established working groups so far for a regulatory framework. So that regulatory framework has not been finalized yet. As I understand it, Gover Governor Newsom's denial came with an instruction an explicit instruction for California to immediately begin the process of establishing a regulatory framework for state legalization of psychedelics. I think that implies that he would sign a bill that provided for such a regulatory framework. And I think this is a reasonable step that is in line with what has happened in Oregon and Colorado. So talk a little bit more about, you mentioned licensed therapists. Are we talking about doctors or are we talking about other professionals or what are the qualifications, at least in Oregon, which sounds like it's furthest down the pike, in, in terms of how to become a licensed therapist to use these drugs? Uh, in Oregon, you do not have to be a medical doctor, but you do have to be a um, you know medical professional, but you have to receive a specific license from the state of Oregon that you get by completing a class from several providers that are specifically um, approved by the state of Oregon. And I know that at, uh, at University of California, Berkeley, they now have a program for that they call the facilitator program. How do these individuals relate to the, the therapy? Um, so in states where it is not yet state legal, there, there are various programs going on. And also MAPS is running a program to train facilitators for the use of MDMA uh, when it becomes legal. In, in California, I would say if somebody is being trained in California, it, it would be a prospective training that where California has not legalized psilocybin yet. But for example, if somebody undergoes that facilitator training, it would be useful and probably speed up the process later if California does approve this bill and establish a regulatory framework. And they could go to Oregon and, and work right away, I would presume. But uh, um, they would, but they would need to go to go through the Oregon uh, Oregon's framework. Right. But but the point is the training would be similar to, to what the program is at, at, at Berkeley. So, but uh, get, to get to a related issue, explain the role of the facilitator as opposed to the therapist who's actually administering the drug, because my understanding was the facilitators are more intended to be with the individual, help them get acquainted with what the experience will be like, 
and then post-therapy actually help them with readjustment? Yes, yeah, so the and, and this is actually backed by the clinical research. And for, for example, on substances like psilocybin, researchers have found that integral to the therapeutic benefits of, of something like psilocybin is what is referred to as the set and setting that the person is undergoing. And so the psychedelic therapy that happens has a beneficial effect if the person that is taking the substance is in a, a setting that where they feel safe. Music actually has a clinically measurable effect on uh, on the success rate of, of these substances. And, and it's just sort of a, the role of a facilitator is to be there to, first of all, make, make the person feel safe, possibly ask some questions during the session that will help facilitate, you know, reflection or whatever it is that, that this person is trying to get from these therapy sessions. And there is usually more than one post-session post integration session that usually happens, you know, a couple of days and then a week or at certain intervals after the experience to help the person reflect on, on things that were learned during the session and sort of integrate that, what they learned into their daily life. So now let's, we've talked some about cannabis, and obviously that is a, a substance uh, where there's been some significant ferment, including decriminalization of the use of it just generally as opposed to in a therapeutic setting. But looking at it purely from therapeutic setting, are there lessons to be learned as states are considering, you know, permitting these types of therapies with the, the psychedelic type drugs that are important and, and need to be recognized in terms of either developing the regulatory framework or problems that have arisen within some of these states that have, have moved forward on cannabis? Yeah, you know, I think that the route psychedelic research has taken has been much more on the path of clinical trials and FDA approval. And I think that's a lesson that they learned from, uh, from the cannabis industry because cannabis did not go that route. They really went more the, result, the route of recreational adult use. And, you know, as everybody knows, after 40, 50 years, cannabis is still schedule one, even though it has paradoxically been legalized in, in many states for adult use. Um, I don't see psychedelics going the adult use route, uh, mainly because the effects can be much more intense in the short term. And, and they do a big dose of psychedelics will actually, you know, can involve hallucinations, ego death and uh, ego death, not actual death. <laughs> um, and uh people would need to be monitored in, in a monitored setting. So I, I don't know that it would go the, the sort of recreational use path. Yeah, and some of us, uh, like me, who were around during the 1960s, remember Legion stories about people using LSD and having some very profound effects. And if you weren't in a managed setting, it could be uh, even deadly to people in certain circumstances. Um, I want to touch on one last topic today, which is some religious groups, particularly among Native Americans, but there are others that have at least suggested that they have claims that the, um, the use of psychedelics is a religious practice. Now, back in the 1980s, there was litigation over this in the state of Oregon uh, relating to a Native American who was using peyote in ritual ceremonies and was denied public benefits. And the Supreme Court at that time made a holding that someone who is subject to a generally applicable law, in other words, it wasn't focused on the religious practice, could not claim a religious exemption from the law. Subsequent to that, Congress passed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and in fact, uh, has added some things beyond that. And that 
view has been strongly endorsed by some members of the Supreme Court who are willing to give a big sway to people based on religious beliefs. Is there going to be an effort by some of these groups now to assert a religious freedom claim as a basis for the use of psychedelics among their adherents? I think there is. Um, uh, this is an idea that a lot of groups have, have come up with. It's a question I get all the time from prospective clients. But my short answer to that is for people that, that we represent is that you really need to tread very carefully because invoking the RFRA to protect your otherwise Schedule One illegal activity is just really, really risky. The scrutiny applied to churches that use psychedelic substances is very severe. It's subject to the whims of the DEA for enforcement. Also, any argument that a psychedelic substance is being used as therapy or for a medicinal purpose undermines the argument that it is being used for a religious purpose. So a lot of these groups that are holding, you know, psychedelic therapy sessions, well, that's a direct, uh, you know, contradiction to any argument that, that, that it was actually purely for religion. So, um, you know, I should mention that the DA does have an application process for religious use, but really, as far as I understand it, only a handful of organizations have been granted such a permit, and it's not all too clear to me, you know, what the parameters of, of the DA granting or not granting such permits are, but they do not grant them often. And um, many states do have their own mini RFRA. That's state law. It does not prevent the DA from exercising its authority. So I guess I guess what the most important thing is anyone planning on seriously arguing RFRA um, has probably already been subject to seizure and detainment. That's the position that you would be arguing from, even if the Supreme Court is is you know um, sympathetic to you. Um, I don't think clients contemplating this path really want to be arguing from that position. Well, Karen, thank you very much for providing your insights on this important topic. I believe that the listeners uh, uh, to this podcast will greatly benefit from having heard your uh, your comments today. And I would like to uh, uh, thank our audience for listening to this session of Voices in Health Law. And now a word from our sponsors. The Health Law section would like to thank our premier sponsors for making today's podcast possible. Five-star premier sponsor, AAA four-star premier sponsors BRG and BMG Health, and three-star premier sponsors Pinnacle Health. Want more audio content from the ABA Health Law section? Listen to narrations of the section's publications by registering for the ABA Health Law audio app. The service is available for purchase to non-section members and free for all Health Law section members. Go to modiolegal.com slash subscribe slash ABA hyphen health hyphen lawyer to subscribe today.